Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Bijan, Jeff Myers, and once again with our uh, guest, Ralph Smith. Uh, Ralph, as I, we discussed in the previous episode, has been a pastor in Tokyo for the past 40 years. He's uh, the author of a number of books on the Trinity, uh, author of a book on the book of Deuteronomy and uh, Yahweh's paternal relationship with his son Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. We talked about that in the last episode, really illuminating insights into the theology of the book of Deuteronomy and how that fits into the understanding of the covenant and of Trinitarian theology. So we're, we're glad to have Ralph back with us for this episode. Alistair uh, is not with us this week. Uh, he's traveling. I, I expect he's uh, uh, making a move back from, the, from England. Having seen the coronation, uh, he's moving back to the U.S. for the next several months. Brian Motes, as always, we're grateful for Brian's work uh, to uh, record this and to edit it and make it all available to you, our audience. Well, we're toward the beginning of a series of podcasts on Deuteronomy. We have uh, been going chapter by chapter, and we're in the first commandment section of Deuteronomy. Uh, we started chapter seven last week and didn't get very far, so we're going to pick up toward the middle of chapter seven and go on, uh, see how far we get. If we get to the end of chapter seven, that'll be good. If we go over into chapter eight, we can keep going. We'll play it by ear. Uh, this is the first commandment section of Deuteronomy, and as I pointed out last time, what we find in these chapters is the first word, thou shalt have no other gods before my face, or thou shalt have no other gods before me. That first word is uh, much more multidimensional and multifaceted than we might think. It's uh, not just about worshiping, overtly worshiping other gods. We saw in, in the last episode that it in, it includes the demand to carry out harem warfare against the Canaanites and against their idols uh, and to clear the land of idolatry. That's that's part of obedience to the first word. That continues to be part of the obedience to the first word for Christians. Uh, we are at war with idols. That's part of what it means to love God with our whole heart, soul, and strength. We're rooting out idols from ourselves. Uh, we are vexed, as Paul was in Athens, by the idols that we see around us. Uh, and we want to proclaim the Worship of Jesus until every everything that raises itself against Jesus is cast down, and Jesus alone is exalted as our Lord. So that intolerance is not something that's simply an old covenant phenomenon, but it's uh, that intolerance of idolatry is a new covenant phenomenon as well. As we'll see in coming chapters, uh, the first word also involves a recognition of our dependence on the Lord's gifts. It's uh, involves humility before the Lord. Moses is continually reminding the Israelites that they need to remember. He, he exhorts them to remember, and he warns them not to forget. That also is part of the first word. Guarding the commandments is part of the first word. Not becoming proud and thinking that we're self-sufficient. That's part of obedience to the first word. Before we get into the specifics, we pick up kind of toward the middle of uh, chapter seven. Uh, one thing has occurred to me as I as I we've been going through the early chapters of Deuteronomy. I've spent much more time in Leviticus than I have in Deuteronomy over the years, and the differences between them are uh, emerging. And I just want to I want to throw something out, an idea that uh, seems to be at work when I think of those two books in comparing and contrasting the two. And let me start with the, just a, with just a small uh, observation. At the beginning of chapter seven, it says, when Yahweh your God shall bring you into the land where you're entering to possess, the verb bring and enter is the same 
Hebrew verb in different aspects. And that's the that's the common language that we have throughout these chapters for uh, what's going to ha- what's about to happen. Israel has come out of Egypt. They've been in the wilderness. They're in the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan, and Yahweh is going to bring them into the land. Uh, and that's it's not a particularly significant word in itself. It's not a it's not a technical term. The verb is used in uh, all over the place. I don't know how many hundreds of times it's used in the Hebrew Bible. But it does. It does occur to me that there's a there's an entry idea here. The Lord is uh, bringing Israel into the land that Israel is entering, and that this verb is used in Leviticus to describe approach not to the land but approach to the sanctuary, and approach to the altar, going into the altar or entering the altar. That's the same verb. That's a small thing by itself. And then you, I started thinking about other other things that that fill out that contrast. There's a, an emphasis in, in uh, Leviticus and even more in the early chapters of Numbers on the duty of res, duty of Levites and priests to guard the sanctuary. The verb is shamar in the Hebrew, and that goes back to Adam's uh, responsibility to guard the Garden of Eden. But in in uh, Leviticus and Numbers, the focus, at least, I don't know that it's invariable, but the focus of guarding is the house of Yahweh. You guard the house. Levites are supposed to guard uh, so that no, they're supposed to do guard duty so that no unauthorized intruder gets into the sanctuary because that could that could cause defilement and that could cause the Lord's anger to burst out against Israel. Deuteronomy is full of that verb. Uh, these the opening chapters. I don't know how many times we've come across the verb shamar. It's translated, unfortunately, translated in different ways. Sometimes as keep. Every time it says keep the commandments, keep the statutes. That's guarding. When it says that the Lord will keep his covenant or keep his loving kindness, that's the same verb, shamar. There's a, the verb beware in these chapters, beware lest you do thus and such, that's shamar. So there's a, a, a concentration of that verb in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy, but none of it has to do with the sanctuary. Now it has to do with your memory, beware, guard your memory, guard your heart, uh, guard the commandments. Uh, it has to do more with the land and guarding the land. The work of Israel in Deuteronomy, of course, that we talked about last time, is to go into the go into the land and to tear down altars, smash sacred pillars, hew down Asherim, burn uh, images in fire. It's supposed to clear the land. The focus is on the land rather than on constructing the Lord's house. So I guess it's the overall thrust of this seems to be that we have a transition. Uh, from a focus in in Leviticus on uh, the sanctuary garden environment, that's where the, that's the rules are all concentrated on what happens at the at the sanctuary. Uh, and now in Deuteronomy, we've expanded beyond that. We're in the the other environment. We're not in the garden environment of the sanctuary. We're now in the land environment, uh, and the same kinds of terms are used. There's also an entry. There's also a requirement to guard. There's also a kind of sacrificial procedure. There's a the, all those things still apply, but they're applying in a different way because now they're applying on this larger scale uh, in the land. Uh, so we move from garden to land. That's one way to characterize the difference between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Another way, it, it almost seems like we've moved from a kind of old covenant, uh, Leviticus being an old covenant kind of style uh, book to Deuteronomy having a more expansive new covenant outlook. And uh, uh, one, one way that I'm, I think that seems to work is that uh, when you think about sacrifice, the sacrifice is concentrated on what happens at the sanctuary in the book of Leviticus. And in Deuteronomy, you now have uh, similar kinds of activities and similar kind of commandments, 
but now it's has to now it's um, expanded out to include uh, all of life. It's not just that you're what happens at the sanctuary is sacred activity, or the priests and the Levites are sacred personages, but Israel is a holy people. That's that's also that's a premise of Leviticus, but it seems to be more emphasized in, in Deuteronomy. Israel is the holy people, and everything they do uh, is holy. Uh, the ho- the holiness is expanded out from the uh, from the sanctuary to the land. So that feels like a kind of a proto new covenant situation as Israel as Israel enters the land. It's there's this uh, new uh, new kind of arrangement of things that that fits within the Pentateuch because this is a second giving of the covenant uh, as Israel goes in. But it does seem to have it's a microcosm of the larger transition from old to new uh, that happens uh, in the in the Bible as a whole. Peter, a kind of observation that perhaps compliments like fits alongside that is um, the sense in which in uh, towards the close of numbers, we get the uh, distribution of the cities for uh, the Levites and the, um, the 42 cities and then plus the cities of refuge. And then in Deuteronomy, we, we start getting mention of the phrase that is only introduced here. Um, the Levite that is within your towns, that's particularly in uh chapter 12, and then it continues in chapter 14, and, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns or within your gates, however you want to um, translate it. But it seems like there's then that same expansion that the um, the guards of the sanctuary, you now get sort of Levitical cities and then the Levite within your gates. And it feels like there's that same movement going on. Yeah, that's that's helpful. The, uh, of course, the uh, there will be sections of Deuteronomy that speak about the the priests and the Levites and uh, speak about the sanctuary duties. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 in particular is uh, about tithes given to those who stand in. Um, I, no, I'm thinking I, I got numbers. It's not. It's Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, it's Deuteronomy 18. Yeah, uh, is, Levites yeah. and Levites and priests are in view. I, I was getting confused with numbers 18, but yeah, Levites and Levites and priests are in view. So there is there is this focus on those specific duties. But yeah, that's uh, it's not it's not the gathered Levites at the sanctuary, gathered priests at the sanctuary that are mentioned most often, but the the scattering of the Levites around the land. Yeah, that that fit that definitely fits with the the pattern that I think I'm seeing. Hearing that makes me think of the situation with the apostles and the early church in the New Testament, where you you're almost have a similar situation where you're getting ready to enter into this new world, but you're not quite there. It's like you're you're on the plains of Moab, and and Joshua Jesus um, is getting ready to bring you in, um, and you're 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 already making, you know, you're already engaged in this kind of warfare, if you will, with um, the nations. Uh, but it has a similar feel to it. I just got finished with going through Hebrews at church, and it has that kind of feel to it too. Like they're the people are in the wilderness, the church is in the wilderness and getting ready to come into a, a new world. Um, and they, there's rest promised by Joshua, by Jesus, if they would just hang on, endure, be faithful. And, and, and it just has a, a similar feel to it that you have these kinds of transitions in the, in, in what we call the old covenant or the old world, where there are these new situations where you move from sanctuary to land to world. And this is just one big one, I think, in 
moving from uh, the time of the Exodus and Leviticus into Deuteronomy, at least preparing for this new world, which Joshua will lead them into. I think we uh, closed our discussion last time around verses 10 to 11 of uh, Deuteronomy 7. So uh, we can pick up, it's roughly in the middle of the chapter with verse 12. And we, we talked about this briefly, but um, uh, the accent in the following verses, verses 12 and following, is on the blessings that Israel can expect. If they hear the judgments and guard and do them, then Yahweh himself will guard his covenant. There's a kind of reciprocity there. And then the, um, the following verses talk about the Lord's blessing of Israel. This is um, Genesis 1 language. It's creation language. Uh, the Lord creates things, and then he blesses them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, here we have the promise that the Lord will bless and multiply uh, in all these different dimensions of Israel's life in the land, if they hear and do, if they hear and guard. Uh, but verse 13 also brings out the the premise of that, which we talked about toward the end of last episode, that um, it's the Lord's love that he set on Israel. It's the Lord's choice of Israel. That's the ground of Israel's status. Israel is a holy people only because of the Lord's choice not because they're more in number, uh, but they were the fewest of all. Even, even as they enter the land, there's still land, nations that are greater and mightier that they're going to have to face, um, as Moses says at the beginning of chapter 7. Uh, so there's nothing in Israel that means uh, that, uh, that's the uh, basis for Israel's status. It's because of Yahweh. And the same thing is true of Israel as this kind of Adamic people that lives under the blessing of God and multiplies. That's not on the basis of anything uh, in them. They they're have to obey, but that obedience is a response to the love that God set on them. And it's always uh, loving God because he first loved us. That's the dynamic. Uh, so that responsiveness is a kind of condition, but the foundation of the whole situation is the Lord's love for them and his promise to, promise to bless and multiply them. It's striking how personal all this is. So verse 13 he will love you, bless you, multiply you. But then also, down later on, um, there is the warning in verse, well, there was the warning in verse 10 that if you don't, if you're not faithful, that the Lord will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So there is this divine punishment that is personal. There is this divine blessing uh, that is also very personal and i mean that's got that's got to be and i don't know the answer to this and i was looking at a couple of commentaries about this it's got to be unusual in the ancient near east that you would have this intensely personal language almost down to the individual and that's the way it comes down in, in the end if if you say in your heart these nations are greater than I, verse 17. So it's not just a corporate kind of relationship that God has with his people, but it's intensely individual and personal as well. You probably pointed this out in previous talks, but you know, Deuteronomy is Moses' last words to the people of Israel 
in the 11th month of the 40th year, just before he dies. It's his last will and testament. And he, he is imitating what Jacob did when he gathered his sons around him and spoke uh, his last words to them. And then Jesus imitates uh, Jacob and Moses and David and Joshua when he brings his disciples around him and speaks his last words to them. And here in uh, Deuteronomy, it says that uh, God keeps covenant and steadfast love, this is verse 9, with those who love him and keep his commandments. And that's exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. The one who loves me is the one who keeps my commandments, and I will love him, and my father will love him, and we will have fellowship with him. Uh, Jesus is repeating what Moses says here about love and mutual love. The keeping the commandments is not, uh, if, if you read, if some people read verse 12 out of context, because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord will keep with you the covenant and love. If you obey me, then I will love you. And that's not what's going on at all. Uh, the love begins with God, and their keeping the commandments is an expression of love. And Jesus picks that theme up and says the same thing in his last words to his disciples in, in John 13 to 17. Yeah, that analogy is really helpful. I'm thinking of the uh, Jacob and his sons. You have uh, Moses now speaking to the sons of Israel, the expanded sons of Israel, the 12 tribes, not just 12 sons, and uh, puts him in a, in a himself in a kind of paternal relationship with Israel. Uh, we talked last time, Ralph, about how uh, Yahweh himself is Israel's father, and you have this father-son relationship that's the the uh, framework for everything in Deuteronomy. And Moses has that a similar kind of paternal relationship with Israel. Of course, that comes out. The parallel with Jacob comes out uh, even more overtly when you get to the end of the end of the book, and you have these uh, these various blessings that are pronounced uh, overtly against the uh, uh, these blessings that are pronounced overtly over the different tribes, uh, mimicking exactly what Jacob did. So Deuteronomy thirty three is very much on the model of Genesis forty nine. Something I'm struck by in verse um, thirteen onwards is just this connection, this very close connection between Israel's um, obedience here, although the reverse will be true, and the prosperity of the land. And so uh, as they, as Israel keep the Lord's commandment, he blesses the um, fruit of the womb of the ground, um, the grain, the wine, the oil, and then it sort of goes on to talk about the um, sicknesses and how the diseases will be uh kept away from them so all sorts of natural uh illnesses i guess and um this connection between israel's environment between the natural world and between god's people is it's just something that strikes me as um very present in um well throughout the whole pentateuch but just in scripture generally and um not to stray too much into sort of controversial um, areas. I know that uh, Jeff and Peter like to do that, but I, I don't. Um, uh, but th there are certain readings of the New Testament, particularly, I guess I'm thinking of um, Romans 5, where people posit a, a disconnect between the physical world and, I guess, between spiritual realities. And so kind of the world can always been have been as it was with 
thorns and thistles and earthquakes and illnesses and so forth. And then at some point, man becomes um, spiritually made in God's image and then he falls and then spiritual death enters into the world. But really the physical world is much as it was. Um, it, it was always riven with all these diseases and and, and so on. And um, Deuteronomy, not to mention kind of the fall and the flood and all sorts of other texts, but the, the, Deuteronomy doesn't seem to allow that connection to my um, mind. There is just this very tight um, connect between kind of how God's people behave and how the world is around them and whether or not they kind of prosper and flourish in their natural environment. Yeah, you won't get any controversy from me on that point. I think that's exactly right. You don't have that kind of disconnect of spiritual and physical realities. And the the, the presumption there would be that the natural world kind of functions independently of man and somewhat independently of God, that it's not, it has its own rules and it, it, uh, it just plugs along like a, like a giant machine, regardless of what, how human beings behave. But yeah, that's certainly not the biblical picture that you have uh, this intimate relationship between human behavior and the quality of the environment. And that, and that's, um, Part of that, we're going to get to this in Deuteronomy later, but there are there are rules about how to care for the land that uh, that the Lord gives to Israel. So uh, there's, in some cases, there are some very direct uh, direct relationship. There's direct relationship between keeping those commandments and uh, the the flourishing of the land. You're supposed to give the land rest, for example, uh, at uh, periodically, and that's a doing that is obedience to the commandment, and therefore is blessed. But it also has this direct relationship to the the uh, fertility of the land that they're inhabiting. Yeah, we saw that with the Sabbath, didn't we? The, in the keeping of it, there was this expansion of the principle. It's not just some observance. It's about giving your servants rest, giving the land rest, the beasts rest, and, and so forth. Uh, Jim has talked a number of times about Rupert Sheldrake and his views on morphic resonance. And uh, reading this made me uh, think of that also, because there are intimate connections between people and other people and between people and the land that they live in. And how we live affects the land in ways that we cannot possibly see. The idea of morphic residence, that there are these connections that are unseen and behind and underneath everything, uh, really, I think, has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. And Deuteronomy, when it talks about if you obey the commandments of God, which means if you love him and you show your love in your everyday life, it's going to bring about blessings in ways that we cannot see because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, Rupert Sheldrake is uh, maybe a, a name that uh, our listeners aren't entirely familiar with, but I, I recommend his work. He's uh, written a number of very fascinating books. He's, a, I think, a Cambridge-trained uh, scientist, but he works, in the, he works on the edges of what's considered mainstream science, uh, but insists that certain that we, we grapple with phenomena of the world, even if things don't seem to fit our scientific theories. And that's one of them, that there's this, things can, things can be related at a distance. There can be kind of a species phenomenon you have species that act as a kind of unit 
even though they they're not all in the same place. There's there's a there's yeah there's forces that are at work uh, that uh, are beyond what current science captures. And I, yeah, I'd agree with you, Ralph, that the uh, the Holy Spirit is the agent of all those. Do we want to address this uh, issue controversy about well, almost at least three of the commentators I looked at uh, make a big deal about this in this particular portion of Moses' message, you have bookends of destroying uh, the Canaanites, uh, total destruction, Korean warfare at the beginning and at the end. And then in the middle, you have the picture of Yahweh or the, the revelation of Yahweh as a God who loves, you know, loves to love. Um, he's a God of covenant love and he expects love from his people, love of him. Uh, and this is viewed as by many as a great, you know, theological difficulty uh, because you have the extermination of the Canaanites and the Canaanite religion on both ends. And in the middle, you have a revelation of the God of love. And it, it almost serves in, in a lot of these commentators as the kind of cipher for the whole problem, the whole challenge of the Old Testament. How is this, how can we have a God of love who commands these kinds of things of his people, who expects this kind of violence, this kind of cultural destruction, if you will, from his people? Jeff, you just wanted to point out that you'd read at least three commentaries, didn't you? That was what that was about. Well, I, I spent a little bit of time yesterday outside with a cigar with a stack of three or four commentaries. Yeah, I did. <laughs> You know, I think that uh, we, we've addressed that uh, kind of uh, indirectly in what we've already said about these these chapters. Um, one way of response to that is what uh, James said in the last episode, that this is uh, clearly not a genocide because you don't have you don't have standards applied to the Canaanites that are not applied to Israel. The reason why the Canaanites are being exterminated from the land is because they've they've become repulsive to God. If Israel becomes repulsive to God, then they will also be exterminated from the land, which is a constant warning in Deuteronomy. So uh, the other part of it is that um, I think it's the question or the problem seems to me to arise from a misunderstanding of what it means for God to be a God of love and the recognition, specifically uh, the recognition that God's jealousy and God's love are two aspects of the same thing. So he's jealous in one aspect of his jealousy is he demands Israel to be attentive to him. Israel is his son, his precious possession, his bride. And he protects, I think that's part of what it means for him to guard the covenant. He guards the covenant means he guards that relationship with Israel. And if things interfere with that relationship, then he breaks out in forceful hostility toward those things that would break that relationship. So idolatry and idols that can that can seduce Israel away from him and interfere with the, the unique and exclusive relationship that Israel is supposed to have to him uh, are objects of his wrath and hatred. Uh, but that's not an expression. That's not a violation of his love, but an expression of his love. Yeah. I, I wonder if a, another way of coming at the same issue is to think about the role of the priests as often being a, a role that requires some element of warfare and, and in fact of of violence you know when you're guarding and when you're separating what is not just clean from unclean but ultimately which is 
righteous from unrighteous that can involve that those kind of violent acts we i mean you just think need to think about the notion of a of a priest you know um moses slays um an egyptian his his fellow levites slay 3000 israelites who have gone into idolatry um phinehas skewers a, a simonite um sinner and samuel puts Agag to death, and and you can even think about the whole image in Psalm 110 of of a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is associated with with holy warfare. And so I think that when you um, ground the idea of love in that idea of um, loyalty and devotion, then these kind of acts of cherem warfare and and the rest of it can uh, naturally be seen as, as flowing out of it. Maybe it'd be helpful also just to remember that behind the Lord's anger, the Lord's uh, commandment that these religious uh, practices would be destroyed, would be dealt with, is just the basic fact that, you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteous, the Romans 1 thing. And what do they do? They exchange the glory of God for an image in the form of of beasts and other kinds of uh, created things, so that what's going on in the religion uh, in the culture of Canaan, as we read in verse 26 of chapter 7, is an abomination. Uh, It's an abomination to the Lord. Well, 25 and 26, you shouldn't be ensnared by these things because it's an abomination to Yahweh your God. So it's not just that the Lord wants to expand israel he also wants he also needs to judge in in righteousness in justice um an affront to him where the image or man made in his image is making him to be uh these created things these trees and these these pestles these carved images that just on the face of it for the lord requires action uh, and requires some sort of, of justice. I'll pick on something uh, Jeff said earlier about the personaliz- personalism of these commandments. And I think that's uh, particularly evident in the section from verses 17 through 24 of chapter 7. The Lord has been addressing what Israel does in the go in the land, how they make war against the Canaanites and their idols. He promises blessing in all kinds of concrete, material kinds of ways. But he's also addressing the heart, verse 17, if you should say in your heart. And uh, that's going to come up periodically through the next several chapters. There's, uh, If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater, he's addressing the issue of fear. He says something similar in chapter 8. He warns against pride in their heart uh, in verse 14, when they have uh, enjoyed the fruitfulness of the land and the plenty of the land, and they aren't hungering anymore as they did in the wilderness, then they need to be careful that their heart doesn't become proud. And then in chapter 9, verse 4, do not say in your heart when the Lord has driven them out from before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me to possess this land. So there's several times here, There's uh, the Lord is addressing not just the public behavior of Israel, but is addressing the attitudes of their heart. So great emphasis in chapter 7, and particularly in chapter 8, on what Israel is supposed to know you're supposed to learn things from their experience in the wilderness. They're supposed to know things that they enter the land. So there's there's this uh, 
this kind of completes instruction, not just for external behavior, but also for how Israel is supposed to think and feel and believe. The specific thing here in verses um, 17 to 14 is the issue of fear. The nations are greater. I can't dispossess them. I'm afraid of them. And the response to that is memory. Perfect memory drives out fear. If Israel remembers what they what the Lord did to, to Pharaoh in Egypt, if Israel remembers all the plagues and uh, how effectively and completely the Lord defeated that great power of Egypt, then they can be confident that he'll be able to eliminate these much lesser nations in Canaan. This is somewhat uh, related, but in verse 10, started moving back a little bit here, but it, uh, God will repay to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. Okay, uh, Peter refers back to this, the Lord is not slack, as some people say, and it's in the Septuagint, it's the same exact word. But <clears throat> the the interesting point is when you look at the, the narrative from Genesis onward, and then the narrative from Joshua onto the rest of the Old Testament, uh, you wonder uh, exactly what does God mean when he says, I will not be slack, and he gives Israel hundreds of years to repent, and he lets the Canaanites have hundreds of years to repent. But then sometimes, like at, at Mount Sinai, the judgment comes really swift and heavy. God's ways of being patient with people and giving people a chance to repent, like Peter says, and then God's judgment coming swiftly, as it does at other times, is part of the mystery of the way the biblical narrative is a commentary on the laws. Yeah, I guess one way to state that is that God does not count slackness as we count slackness and uh, what looks like inattention to us. And sometimes the Lord waiting too long to act is, in fact, uh, a perfect timing. I make this point in my King's commentary that by the time you get to the end of Kings and the Lord is finally sending Judah out of the land, if you've been reading attentively, then your action shouldn't be, man, God is so mean. <laughs> it should be, uh, what took him so long? Uh, Judah has been deserving this for generations, uh, and yet finally the Lord is doing it. So, it, uh, you know, yeah, you're right that it's a great mystery, but it's uh, it's the Lord's patience is not like our patience, and his uh, his uh, harshness, the severity of God is not like our severity. It's and and always it's perfect timing. Now, I wonder what you think of verse twenty. The Lord is going to send the hornet against them. Do we talking about literal hornets? Is he unleashing uh, swarms? Is this a plague? The word hornet can uh, is related to the uh, the word that's used for stroke or a stroke of skin disease in in Leviticus. So uh, some have suggested that it refers more to pestilence than to than to insects. Anybody? Did you all think about that and what uh, what? The Lord is going to do to the Canaanites to prepare for the conquest. Is there any reference to this uh, other than here? Don't we have it at the close of um, Joshua um, uh, twenty-four? I think God says, "I did, I did send the hornet um, before you, which drove them out." Um, I think that's the Amorite Amorite kings. Is, is is that right? Or that is that is right? It's in Joshua chapter twenty-four, verse twelve. I sent the hornet before you, and it sounds like literal hornets to me. Yeah, so that would mean the Lord is enlisting creatures other than human beings to uh, carry out part of the conquest and to kind of soften up the Canaanites. 
that that would fit with the uh with the other with the way god operates fits with the context here which is talking about egypt and the great trials signs wonders the mighty hand outstretched arm that's uh, that's those are all references to among other things to the plagues that uh, the lord brought he sent locusts to egypt he can send hornets into the into the canaanites the other thing that's uh, interesting about this this section verse 22 the lord is going to clear out the nations before you little by little uh, we we have a like a, a seven year conquest that's recounted in the book of joshua but it's even then there's uh, there's still peoples that are there we know that from the beginning of judges there's still Canaanite peoples, as each tribe goes into its territory, it's supposed to continue the conquest within its territory. And the reason is so that the land doesn't become cleared out and the, the of human beings, uh, which would encourage wild beasts to take over the land. So there's a gradual elimination. Surely this is also part of God's pedagogy of Israel. They're supposed to learn the ways of war they're going to learn it little by little. They're not going to just have the one generation that goes in and makes war, but uh, other the later generations are also going to have to carry on something like the war of the first generation. But that I think that's a, a, verse twenty two is an interesting, and a, I suspect an un, uh, would is somewhat surprising. I think that uh, there's a widespread notion that the conquest is kind of a lightning strike, it's a blitzkrieg, and then uh, and then it's over. But um, even I don't think it's just over in the seven years. I think it's carried out over over a longer period. Back in Exodus twenty three, uh, also mentions the hornets. Uh, Exodus twenty three twenty eight, and expands on this a little bit. Uh, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate. And the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. That gets back to, I think, something we said in the last podcast about um, chapter 7, mentioning that um, these nations are more numerous and mightier than you. Uh, so there's going to, it's going to take some time for the Israelites to multiply in a way that they'll be able to possess the whole land. Uh, so the Lord's not just going to uh, have them all exterminated. Otherwise, the land would be desolate and the wild beasts would multiply. Yeah, Exodus 23 is interesting, isn't it, Jeff? Because before the verse about the hornets, you've got a, what seems to be a parallel uh, parallelism in some ways. So verse 27, I will send my terror before you. And will throw into confusion all the peoples against whom you shall come, etc. And then next verse, and I will send hornets before you, which will drive out. And it, it does make you wonder um, if it is a kind of literal hornet that's in mind. I mean, it, it could be, I got no problem if it is, but either way, it seems to be um, so that Israel don't become proud. And um, that's uh, particularly uh, clear in Joshua, if, if I. Recall, you know, so that you don't say it's with my bow and with my sword that I've um, accomplished this. The chapter ends, as I mentioned uh, in the last episode, with a warning, a commandment against coveting. And specifically, they're not supposed to covet the silver and gold that are the materials of the graven images. You're supposed to burn the graven images with fire and even the silver and gold that are uh, 
of those images. It's not just that you can't have the images, but you can't have the materials of which they're made. You ought not covet that. And if you do and take that into your house, it's an abomination, verses 25 and 26, use the word abomination twice. And then verse 26, if you take that abomination into your house, like it, you come under the ban. If you're possessing, uh, you know, this is a this is Aiken's story in Joshua seven. He takes some of the some of the uh, stuff that's devoted to the Lord. Uh, he covets it. He brings it into his house, and his house comes under the ban. And his house is utterly destroyed. But they're they're supposed to treat the treat the materials of the idols with the same kind of revulsion that they treat the idols themselves. There's this kind of piling up of this uh, language of uncleanness, abomination, utterly detest. That's a that's a a doubling of one of a verb for uh, abhorrence that's used in Leviticus for for unclean foods, and then you shall utterly abhor it. That's again a doubling of the verb. Uh, that's the same verb that's behind the word for abomination. You shall, you shall abominate it, utterly abominate it, or abominating. You shall abominate it. So Israel is supposed to uh, treat idols with as much uh, instinctive revulsion as they treat. Uh, unclean foods or corpses or any other unclean thing. And they're also supposed to, even the materials that those idols are made from, they're supposed to, uh, they're supposed to renounce and refuse. There is just the reminder here again of something we've said a couple times, which is also a pretty good answer to the theological objection to that commentators make about this chapter that you have a God who judges pretty severely and yet he is also the God of love, and that is that, um, yes, these uh, pagan nations are going to be devoted to destruction. Yes, their idols and their religious culture will be wiped out, but also uh, if the Israelites act in a similar way, uh, if the Israelites become Canaanites, they also will suffer divine retribution as well. And so there is an encouragement for them to hate and to show open disgust and horror about the, the idols and and the material, as Peter said, the materials that they're made of. Don't let them entice you. Don't let them turn your heart away from the Lord who loves you because they're not going to give you what the Lord has promised to give you. I mean, there is there is this this abundant kind of capacity, boundless capacity for blessing for the Lord's people if they just follow his commandments. And there is this dismal prospect of total destruction if they don't. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.